Well, as he mentioned, we're continuing our study in Esther, and you can turn to chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today. Um, But maybe you haven't been with us as we've been going through this series in Esther. We're calling it Seeing the Unseen. And the reason we're using that sort of title for our theme is because a lot of what you will notice as you go through the book of Esther is that the name of God is not mentioned once. That his law is not mentioned once. In fact, even as we've seen last week and this week, even in the, the presence of fasting, we're all waiting for that word prayer to come with it, and you don't read it there in our text. And yet, the God who may not visibly and clearly be seen on the surface when we dig a little deeper, we clearly see his fingerprints throughout these pages, and we see his providence throughout this story. And so, Last week, we spent some time in chapter 4 seeing this deadly decision that Esther's brought to. This moment, Mordecai presents her with the problem, which in turn is an opportunity. That this deadly decree has gone out that every Jew in this entire area is going to be put to death. And that includes Queen Esther and her uncle, adopted father, Mordecai. And he, he challenges her, what you need to do is you need to bring a request before the king. You have a unique position and opportunity, Esther, and perhaps it's for such a time as this that God would use you to intercede for our people. And Esther presents him with a problem that, that according to the law, no one was allowed to just pro- approach the king without an invitation. This was to protect the king from anybody who had wrong intentions, perhaps an assassination He had to be personally invited by the king if he was to approach his throne. And yet Mordecai reminds her, don't think you will be spared of this. The reality is, Esther, we're all going to die if you don't do this. But maybe this is the very reason God brought you to this place at this time that we might live. And so her her decision at the end of chapter 4 we saw last week was was to tell Mordecai, go out and tell all the Jews to be fasting for three days. Don't eat anything. And me and my maidens, we will do likewise, and then I will go to the king. And she made this bold statement at the end of chapter 4 that if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. But I'm going to go before the king. And this is where we pick up today in Esther chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter, and the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for them. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king... And if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had been advanced, or had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. 
Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made. Fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it, and then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Let's pray this morning as we begin. Lord, as we approach your word this morning, Lord, we recognize that your word is truth. It is living and it is active. And these words we read today, Lord, we see your providence within them, your control over all of this situation. And and even today, here in Auburn, as we gather together and sit before your word, we trust that you have us here in this moment for such a time as this that we are not here by mistake this morning. And you have plans for us even in this moment, words you desire to speak to us, directions you desire to give us, correction you desire to give us. God, I pray that we would have ears to hear, hearts ready to receive, spiritual eyes to see within a spiritual text. And God, that this time would be to your glory and your glory alone. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Well, if you're taking notes and you'd like to write down a title this morning, you can write this down. Enter in. Enter in. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning is entering in. Don't be fooled by the title. Uh, We're in Esther 5, not 4. But that title we're looking at this morning is Entering In. In our text this morning, we see Esther being brought to this point where she must enter into a moment that could be her death. And upon entering that moment and that place, she's then also challenged that she must enter into a conversation that will choose whether or not her and her people live or die. We see Haman entering into moments of great honor And leaving them with great pride, only to enter into a wicked moment because of the counsel of his wife and friends, setting a trap, digging a pit that he himself will fall into. But the first thing we read is that it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and she stood in the inner court of the king's palace. This is following those three days where not only Esther and her maidens, but all the Jews in this region, by the instruction of Mordecai, are fasting on her behalf. Or no doubt, although we don't see it explicitly mentioned in our text, praying for the protection and the guidance of Esther in this moment. As she will go before the king on their behalf and seek a way of escape for her people. Now, I just find it fitting that it's three days that have taken place until this act is done because the number three throughout Scripture has quite a significance. We could go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, and we see on the third day of creation is when earth came forth from the waters and the vegetation begins to come to life. That Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days before he finally repents And says, okay, Lord, I will go with that message. And he is spit out of that well, whale, sent to Nineveh, where he brings a message to the people that will ultimately bring life to them because of their repentance as well. Well, it was our Lord and Savior that was three days in the tomb before he came forth with a resurrection power that he invites to all who give their lives To Jesus. And here it's after three days of fasting and waiting that Esther now walks in 
to bring about a request that could bring life to her people. And in this moment, as she approaches his throne, the king sees her, and we read that standing in the court, she finds favor in his sight. The Hebrew actually reads that she obtained grace in his eyes. Esther has laid out her life in this moment as a living sacrifice for her people, and she's met by the grace of the king. As she mentioned last week, she's broken the law in doing this, and he has every right to look on her and then just look away, and she'll be taken away and executed for breaking the law and entering into his presence without an invitation. But in this moment, as she walks in boldly and risks her life, she's met by the grace of this king. His favor on her life spares her the consequences of her actions, and she is permitted to come in. How is his favor demonstrated towards her? We read that he extends his gold scepter towards her. The scepter was a a symbol in that culture of rulership and authority, and it was the king who would wield it. And when he extended it towards her, it was him extending favor, even in light of the decision she had just made to break the law. It's a pardoning of that as only he could do, so that she can approach him without any consequences. The Hebrew word for scepter, it's shabit, shabit. And here we see the Aramaic form of this word used. It's the very same word we see used all the way back in Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17, when Balaam is giving his fourth prophecy, and he says this prophetic word in Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. This word, Shabbat, that is once again used of this scepter that anticipates over 1,400 years prior the coming of the Messiah who would one day hold that scepter, symbolic of his rule and his authority over all men, over ultimately death and eternity. And how fitting is it that all of us realize today how like Esther we are. That the actions of us are also deserving of death. And that the only way we can approach this king is if we find favor and grace in his eyes. And because of Jesus, the one who rules over all, the one who came to bring authority uh, over sin and death, that we can enter into the throne room of the king and find grace in his eyes. This is why the author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, how did Esther enter that throne room? I'm willing to bet it wasn't boldly expecting to receive grace. It was timidly. It was anxiously. It was hoping and praying and after fasting, desiring to see his favor, but having no guarantee of what was about to take place. You and I can have a confidence, as Hebrews says, a boldness as we enter into his throne room of grace, not wondering, will I find favor? Will I be on his good side? Will I get a favorable outcome for what I'm requesting because of Jesus? We can enter in boldly without question or concern. Because of Jesus, the veil has been torn and we are welcomed in to that space. Because of his death, we have that freedom and boldness. It says she could not come near until the scepter had been extended 
toward her. And let's make no mistake today, we can only be near to God because what Jesus has done. It breaks my heart when I hear people say that they want to clean up their life, they want to get right with God before they decide to give their life to him. I need to fix some things first. I need to clean up some things in my life and then I'll come near to God. You will never be able to accomplish that without the power of God. Esther doesn't come near the presence of God until the scepter has been extended towards her and until you have accepted the work of Jesus on behalf of you, you will never have the power or ability to live a life that will please God and to enter into his presence. And what does this do? It it makes it so each and every one of us here has nothing to boast in themselves. Each and every one of us, because of our sin, deserved death and could not approach the throne room of God had it not been for Jesus. So this morning, we don't boast in what we've done to get here. We boast in the one who completed the work for us so we can be here this morning. We boast in Jesus. And what do we offer others? Not my advice, not my example, not my opinion, and not my power. We have nothing to offer you but Jesus. But in Jesus, you have more than enough. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, Jesus has paid the price. Well, the scepter's extended. And Esther now approaches the king and he asks of her, what do you wish? This statement the king makes, that it shall be given to you up to half of the kingdom. It's an exaggeration. It was not intended to be interpreted literally. We see different kings throughout scripture make this statement. But it was meant to create a strong impression that the king was to be generous Ask what you will, my queen. I'm going to be generous with you. I want to honor your requests. What is it? Tell me, and I'll give it to you. And Esther says in this moment where you're thinking, if I had to fill in the blanks, I know what she's going to say here. She's going to say, you need to know what's been done with this decree and, and what it means for my people. And instead, we see her say, I would like to invite you to a banquet. You and Haman, that's important to a banquet that I've prepared for you guys. Now, most commentators don't see this act as Esther inviting them to the banquet because of a knee-jerk reaction and she's scared and terrified in this moment. Most believe this was a strategic and well-thought-out plan of Esther after three days of fasting, that she wanted to gain confidence with the king. Remember, she just broke the law to enter this room. So she's on thin ice, we could say, with a king who doesn't take lightly when people don't follow his commands. The last queen was taken out of her position for doing something like that. And so most believe in this moment she's thinking, look, I just broke a law to get in here. And now standing before him, I'm going to ask him to come to a banquet, a more intimate setting where I can continue to build confidence with the king and where I can have Haman present in that room as well so that I can speak to what he's done and what it means for the queen and her people. And she invites them to come and join her. Well, the king says, bring Haman quickly, that we may do as Esther desires. And so the king and Haman came to the banquet. One thing that has been very clear in the first four chapters and now in the fifth, if you've been following with us through Esther, is that this king is not quick to say no to a party. In fact, anytime we we read a party, he wants to be a part of it. And so in this moment, he says, well, of course, you want me at a party, I'm there. You want Haman there? Send a messenger. He will be there. We're coming to this party. This is an incredible honor for Haman to receive. Typically, no one but the king was brought into a banquet in the presence of the queen, This is an intimate moment. This is a special moment. And Haman would have been so honored, as we'll see in his response, to get a specific invitation to this party. Only the king and Haman. What an honor. What recognition. And we read at this banquet of wine that the king asks again to Esther, what is your request? Now this king is... 
a pretty foolish king throughout our texts. It often seems like he doesn't make any decisions on his own, and, and the one thing he confidently does is party. But in this moment, we see him get straight to the point. He's no fool. His, his queen risked her life just to enter his presence before, and then says, I need you to come to this banquet with Haman. And so he shows up and he cuts right to the chase and says, all right, what is it? I've given you permission once. I'm going to give it to you again. What is your request? Let it be known to me. She says, my petition and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant to me my petition and fulfill my request, then, and you're thinking, here it is, and she says, let the king and Haman come to a banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. I mean, the king's in the room. Haman is here present. He gives her the opportunity once again. The stage is set, Esther. This is the moment you fasted for. This is the moment your people are fasting for. This is what you said last chapter in, in your boldness that if you perish, you perish. But here it is. Make the request. And she says, King, I brought you here tonight so that I could say, how about round two tomorrow night? Now, this is my opinion. Clearly, there are a lot of different opinions on why she invited them to a second banquet. But it seems fairly clear that the first banquet was a thought-out plan of Esther before she even approached the king's throne. This second, this second banquet, however, I'm less convinced was a part of her original plan. And I'm much more convinced was Esther in a moment sitting in the presence of both the king and Haman, the man who desires all the Jews to be killed and put this whole decree in motion, standing there and she feels the weight and says, can I have a minute? Can we do this again tomorrow? And then I'm going to really tell you what my request is. I believe she puts off her request. This request that is the only hope of salvation for her and her people. Such a big moment and such a letdown for our bold queen with so many lives counting on her. And if this is the case, if this truly is a moment of, of fear, a moment of anxiety, and, and a moment when she doesn't do the things she wishes she would have, what defeat she must have felt in that moment. What discouragement as she in this moment seems to fail in her attempt to present her request to him. I mean, think about this. Even the very request in this moment she makes that they would come back tomorrow night again so that we could do this all over, what if in this moment it would have been rejected? Now, we know the king. I think she understands the odds are in her favor. If I'm inviting him to another party... Odds are he's going to say yes. But what if for some reason the king says, okay, I'll be back tomorrow. Haman's not going to come again. Uh, I kind of need you both here, so I guess I'll just make my request now. Um, under the pressure of perhaps rejection, being forced to maybe real, reveal her intentions all along in this moment, what a mess the situation could have been. Yet we see God's providence in the midst of it. Now, people love to argue that this is the reason we know that she was supposed to request another banquet. Because look at the Lord, look what the Lord does in this night, as we will see next week in chapter six. Look what happens between banquet one and banquet two. Everything changes. And I would argue, but if she would have done, made this request on banquet one, could the Lord not have done all of this before banquet one? Of course, in the Lord's providence, he could have. But here's what I love in this moment. Is that if this was truly an act of fear, if this was truly Esther in this moment, getting caught up, being scared and terrified of what might happen and prolonging what she knows she needs to do, it didn't stop God's control in this moment. It didn't stop God's providence and his beautiful plan he has to protect his people and to use Esther as a part of that plan. 
I would love to take a moment right now to speak to anybody in this room who may be walking in defeat. The people that are filled with shame and discouragement because when your moment came, you did the same as Esther in this moment. Oh, I had a moment to speak truth and I held back. Oh, I had an opportunity and I had a specific authority in that moment and I, I abused it. Oh, there was, there was this, this opportunity that came once, Lucas, with a family member or a friend or a stranger at the store and, and they were seeking truth and they were looking for an answer that I had and I didn't share it with them. And in that moment, the wave of discouragement and shame and the words of the adversary just cover you. God couldn't use me anymore. I failed. No, I had a chance and I wasn't bold enough. No, God's going to have to use someone else because the opportunity came for me and I missed it. Christian, God is bigger than your mistake. And God's providence is so far above and beyond even our obedience in a moment like this. Don't misunderstand me. It is always best to obey when the opportunity presents itself. Don't ever put off to tomorrow what God has called you to do today. Grace is not an excuse to put off what you need to do. Yet when we fail, as we often do, God is still in control and has a plan even in the midst of it. For even this delayed request is being worked about through the providence of God for the good of Esther and all of her people. What she couldn't have possibly known in this moment as the king and Haman leave that banquet is that before her next banquet will take place, everything is brought into light. Haman in his rage is going to have a gallows built for Mordecai that in turn will seal his own fate. God is going to bring Mordecai to a place of honor and recognition before the king for his righteous act that in this moment is all but forgotten. Haman is going to be greatly humbled and the tides will have drastically shifted for the moment that Esther will truly bring that request before the king and before Haman. God was in control of this moment and, and Esther chapter 5 is this hinge we see within the book where everything seems to get to its absolute worst as we finish this chapter and yet God is at work in an incredible way so that chapter 6, man, it flips the script and everything changes for Esther and Mordecai and their people. But if all we did was base our circumstances, base what God is doing and how he's working off of what we see Esther doing, we would close chapter 5 discouraged, disappointed, frustrated, anxious, but when we can step back and see, no, God is doing incredible things, even in spite of what she has done, even in spite of the plotting of Haman, and we can glorify him even in the end of chapter 5. In your life, maybe you feel like in a lot of ways, Lucas, I'm at the end of chapter 5. I feel like I've made mistakes. I feel like wicked people are working against me, and I don't possibly see how any of this is getting better. It just seems like it's getting worse Remember the providence of God in your story. And remember what God can do in one night with a king and with his right-hand man and with a good man who's done a righteous act that seems all but forgotten. God can redeem all of these things and all of these moments. Don't lose heart in what he's doing. We read that Haman goes out from this banquet joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. How fickle are the emotions of the one who places all of their value and satisfaction in the opinions of others. If you want a sure way to be disappointed... To be discouraged, to be frustrated and angered. Just try to be liked and supported by everyone. And I promise you, 
you will walk away from situations the same as Haman does here. This man who's second in command has been brought to this place of honor runs into the one man who disapproves of him, a man whose fate is already sealed by the decree that he's had put in motion, and he's outraged, and he begins to make drastic measures because of this one response. You know, it's been said that an ego is like a bubble. The more it swells, the more fragile it becomes. And this man who walks away from that banquet thinking, man, I am the best. In fact, he's going to invite his wife and friends to a party just to tell them all how great he is and all his accomplishments and and all his children and and the honor he's been given. And, And yet all it takes is him walking by and seeing this one man, Mordecai, at the king's gate who doesn't tremble before him, who doesn't stand in his presence. And he's outraged. But realize this can be us so quickly if we are not careful. We read when he's outraged in this moment, it says, Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Now, what exactly did Haman restrain himself from in this moment? Many believe just this this wicked desire within him just to kill Mordecai in this moment. That he is so furious at this man. He so despises Mordecai and all of the Jews that he can't even stand around this man without wanting to kill him. No matter what his desire was to do in this moment, we see once again the Lord's providence at play in causing him to wait. Because God has a plan that requires a delay in Haman's attack against Mordecai. And so he calls his friends and his wife to the house, and he tells them of his great riches, of the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him and and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Can you imagine what a drag it must have been to be a friend of Haman? Oh, did you hear Haman called us over again? Got a whole list he wants to air out of his riches and wants to tell us all about his power and what the king's doing for him. And and I love that he's boasting in the number of kids he has when I'm like, your wife gets none of the credit here, right? Like, It's been said that pride is the only disease that makes everybody sick except the person who has it. And in this moment, filled with pride, he just wants to sit and talk and feel good about all the things he has. He's trying to cover up the frustration he feels about Mordecai not respecting him and says, I just want people around me that tell me what I want to hear and that just want to listen to all that I have. I want to try and drown out this one man. Have you known people like Haman in your life? Odds are they probably aren't the people you spend the most time with. I wonder, have you ever been like Haman? So consumed with self that you have no space or time to care about those or help those around you. You know, we live in an extremely vain culture that will scream from the rooftops, life is about you. Make you the priority. Live for yourself. Do whatever makes you happy. Cut off all the people that disagree with you. And silence anyone who doesn't respect you or align with you. But church, that is not the kingdom culture we have been called to. No, the kingdom culture of the Lord screams from heaven that it is not about you. God and his glory are the priority. Live for Christ and then even death is gain. Don't do what makes you happy. Do what makes you holy. Walk in the spirit. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Walk in humility. Pour out your lives as a living sacrifice because you have been bought with a price. So live a sold-out life for the Lord. Does this sound extreme? Does it sound radical? Good, because it is. Because that's the culture of our king, and he is not of this world, and he calls us not to live like this world. We are in it, but we are not of it. 
and the way of God is so extremely different from the way of this world, there should be no guessing as to what culture we are living for. But for Haman in this moment, living for himself, he seeks a solution to his problem because he acknowledges even with all that he has, the riches, the power, the children, the name, the attention, he says, yet all this avails me nothing. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, Haman still wasn't satisfied. And he puts all of the blame on Mordecai, the Jew that's at the gate. Yet when we take a look from the outside, we all recognize clearly the problem wasn't Mordecai. Haman's problem was the emptiness of his own heart. Haman's problem was his own pride and blindness to what really mattered. Because as soon as the Mordecai issue would be resolved, I guarantee there would be another problem in Haman's path. The emptiness and lack of satisfaction will always return for the person who was looking for it outside of Christ. And there is no amount of power and no amount of riches and no amount of children or legacy or a name for yourself that will ever bring the satisfaction that Jesus brings in a moment when we surrender to him. In Christ, our anthem is, he is more than enough. But outside of Christ, the anthem is, it's never enough. Always a little more, a little longer. But never truly satisfying. And as he shares this with his friends and his family, the people he trusts most, we read his wife, Zeresh, And all the friends say to him, well, let a gallows be made, 50 cubits high. And then in the morning, suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it, and then go merrily with the king to the banquet. Expect ungodly advice from ungodly sources. His friends and even his wife in this moment seek to appease his anger and hatred towards Mordecai. Now think about it. Even if it's from a wicked place, the wisdom of these people in this moment would be to say, hold on, Haman, you've already put forth a decree, this guy's going to die. Why are you going to make a rash decision in this moment? Just wait. Just hold your horses. He's going to die. Okay, keep perspective. Don't do anything rash. But instead, we see them give him a more extreme solution. Set up a gallows for him. Set up a gallows that's actually 75 feet tall. And first thing in the morning, go to the king and request that he be put on it. Don't wait. Do it now. Act in your anger and in your rage. Beware of company that tells you what you want to hear, but not what you need to hear. The companions that will please your flesh but not sharpen your character. It's been said, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And here in this moment, it's no wonder what Haman's end will be when we see the people he keeps company with and the kind of advice they give him in a moment of his anger and rage. This is the blind leading the blind straight into a pit of death. And what is Haman's response as they tell him this? Oh, this thing, it pleased Haman. So he went and had the gallows made. I'd like to speak for a moment to all the wives that are here today. We see two wives in our text this morning. You've got Esther, the wife of the king, and you've got Zeresh, the wife of Haman. And we see Esther, before she makes a request to the king, spending three days fasting and asking all her people to fast, being thoughtful and intentional about how she approaches him with it before she brings a request to him that will ultimately be for good and bring about life. 
We see Zeresh in a moment spit off the first thing that comes to her mind when her husband's enraged and wanting to appease his anger. Giving him ungodly counsel, unwise advice that will ultimately be to his demise. And we could look at other wives within Scripture that follow suit with Zeresh. How about Job's wife, who is forever canonized in Scripture for her advice to him at his worst, why don't you just curse God and die? What about Pilate's wife, who's been haunted by these dreams and says, have nothing to do with this man, Jesus? How about Abraham's wife, who in a moment says, hey, I've got a solution to God's problem. Here's my maidservant. And here we have Haman's wife, who in a moment says, you're angry, you're outraged. Let's make a decision out of that anger. Let's make a more extreme decision than what's already been made. Now, Proverbs 31, 26 says of a virtuous and wise woman of God, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. Understand the weight of your words to your husband. Understand the influence you have And what you say to him, especially in moments where he is at his lowest, in moments when he has hit a fork in the road and has to make a difficult decision, and he looks to you to be a support and an encouragement to him in that moment, realize the impact your words can have. And realize the danger that can take place when you just tell him words that please him that may not have his best intentions in mind. I'm grateful that I have a wife who does a great job of challenging me on my opinion and things. Now I say that truly meaning that. She, is, she loves the Lord and she will submit to my leadership, but she will challenge me in why I'm making the decisions I am. And she's not going to let me make a rash decision out of my anger and I'm better for it. Haman would have been better in this moment if he had a wife who said, hold up, calm down. You're acting like a child. What you need to do is sit on this. You need to wait. Don't you dare respond in your anger in this moment because you'll regret what you're about to do. Instead, she says, you're angry? You want to do something about it? Sure. Let's make an even more extreme decision. Set up a gallows that, as we will see in the coming weeks, Haman himself is going to be hung on. May the wives here of this church be women whose words are marked by wisdom and the law of kindness. That every husband in this room can say, I'm only the man I am and the leader I am because I have a wife and whose words are marked with wisdom and kindness. She sharpens me. She encourages me. She supports me. And we make better decisions because her opinion is involved in it. Proverbs 26, 27 says, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. We end our chapter with Haman having the gallows prepared. But it's a gallows that he himself will be placed upon in the coming weeks. And we end our chapter in a dark moment. We end our chapter at the very worst that the book of Esther could get. The wicked Haman is in a place of power and honor. More wicked plans are put in motion. Esther is crumbling under pressure and delaying her request to the king. And Mordecai is unaware of what could behold him in the morning. Yet we on the outside see in this moment the hinge that is about to swing as the providence of God will flip this story on its head in just one night. Never doubt in your situation what God could do in just a moment. You say, Lucas, there's so much damage that's been done over such a long time, it would take decades to fix the problems that exist and the baggage that is here. And yet in one moment, God could remove all of that. 
Never doubt what God could do in a night. As we will see in the coming weeks. John Newton once said, as I invite the worship team to come back up, he said, fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Esther had to make a difficult decision, first to enter into the king's presence. She had to make yet another difficult decision as she has to bring up an issue and present her request in the presence of the very man who put it into motion. Haman, on the other hand, entered into his pride. He entered into his anger. He walked in his flesh and has set up a gallows that one day he will be placed upon. But what about you and me this morning? What places are we entering into today? You heard a story this morning of three who had no idea what awaited them after church and the situations they would enter into and the way God would use them in that moment. In fact, truth be told, they they arrived at church this morning not being aware of what they would enter into and I said, hey, could you share that this morning? Who knows what you may enter into as you leave this place this morning but the Lord? What conversations await you? Whose presence are you going to go before with your problems, seeking a solution? In John chapter 10, we're given an invitation of where we are to enter. When we read Jesus say, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Maybe some of you didn't even know that you were going to enter this building this morning and didn't know that we were going to enter Esther 5 this morning. But I want to give you an invitation to enter into something else as well. And that is maybe you've never made that decision that Jesus calls you to, to enter into him, to give your life to Jesus, to surrender to the one who's in control, whether we like it or not, the one whose providence is clearly seen across all of history, and he gives you an invitation to come to him to enter by him because he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. There is no back door to heaven. You enter through Jesus and find life abundant or you enter into the company of the thief who steals, kills, and destroys. But make no mistake, every one of us will enter into one of those places and spend eternity there. For those who have entered boldly into that throne room of grace, to those who have entered into Jesus' finished work and received what he paid for them on the cross, that golden scepter that has been our way of escape from the penalty we deserved has been extended to us. And we have the joy of experiencing what Psalm 100 verse 4 invites us into when it says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. This is what he calls the believer to enter into this morning. But before we can do that, I want to take a moment and give the invitation. If you have not entered in to what Jesus has paid for you, if you have not confessed your sins repented of them and given your life to Jesus, we want to give you a moment right now to make that decision. We want to give you an opportunity to enter into his forgiveness and grace and mercy for you before you ever leave this building. Is there anybody this morning that needs to raise their hand, that needs to make that decision and give your life to Jesus? We want to give you that moment right now.
Well, then I trust this morning that we are in the presence of people who have entered into that forgiveness and grace. And so then my invitation to you this morning is as we spend some time now worshiping our Lord and Savior, the one who extended his own life towards us so that we can come into the presence of God, let's enter into that celebration. Let's enter into his gates with thanksgiving and praise. Let's be thankful and bless his name this morning. And whatever you need prayer for, please do not hesitate to come and pray with people. There are going to be people up here in the front available for prayer. I'm going to be in the back available for prayer. Let's enter into what the Lord has for us in this time before we leave this place. And let's be a people who boldly go where the Lord calls us to go and say what he's called us to say, knowing he goes before us. He is with us. And he has plans even in the midst of our failures. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this reminder through Esther. God, of your providence, even through failure. Lord, of those moments and spaces you call us to enter into, the conversations you call us to have. Lord, I pray that you would cover grace and forgiveness and mercy upon those this morning that are walking in shame and condemnation and guilt. Those who feel like they missed their opportunity, those who feel like they failed in a conversation, God, would you remind them this morning that where sin abounds, grace abounds so much more. And Lord, that their failed moment of an opportunity did not stop your plan of providence, that you are still working, that you are still redeeming, that you are still saving, and you're still in control. And God, I pray in this moment we would enter into what you have for us. Lord, where some of us you may be calling to repent of things and receive prayer that we would do so. Lord, where some of us just need to sing out in a joyful defiance of our situation and say even when things are bad and difficult and I don't know what God is doing, he's still worthy of my praise. God, but we want to be a people that are obedient this morning to enter in where you call us to go and respond as you call us to do for your glory, for your honor, for your praise. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.